Hello everybody, what's up? You're listening to I Was Just Wondering with me, Tom Salmon. The show that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's show is Monique Surgeon, who wrote, directed and produced her latest short film, Sorry Not Sorry. We jumped into Monique's film festival experience, how she got into filmmaking working as a production assistant on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, navigating the film industry as a female filmmaker back in the 1990s, and how she cast the legendary character actor Emma A. Walsh. So, if you're running, stuck in a traffic jam, or sitting behind a desk at work, I hope you enjoy my interview with Monique. So you're on the festival circuit with your latest short film, Sorry Not Sorry. How's it going so far? It's been going really well. I've already been accepted to three, maybe four Oscar qualifying festivals and the American Pavilion of Emerging Filmmakers Showcase at Cannes. Mm -hmm. So it's been really, really fun um, meeting lots of other filmmakers and other, you know, show business types. And then also a lot of like locals in all the cities that I've gone to, which is neat, like film lovers. Which festivals you know? have you um, screened at so far? Um, well, the big ones I've screened at are the Cinequest in San Jose, mm-hmm. uh, Cleveland in Cleveland, and the Florida Film Festival, which is in Orlando. Right. And then I've also screened at a couple of comedy festivals. I screened at the Hollywood Comedy Shorts, which is a branch of Holly Shorts. And just last weekend we screened, but I wasn't there, unfortunately. That was the first one I actually missed being at in person, so I can't tell you about it. But there was a Women in Comedy Festival in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Right. They showcase stand-up comedians, sketch artists, artists, improv artists, but they also had one lineup of short films as well in my film screened in a comedy lineup of all women filmmakers. That lineup was sponsored by NBC. So I've spoken to a few filmmakers, well one filmmaker actually, who's written and produced and directed a short film comedy and you actually might know the the film because he also screened at um, Cinequest. It's called Peggy by Justin and Neil Miller. Yeah, we were in the same block at Cinequest. I think it was my fourth interview that I did and it was such a lovely and, and charming chap. But when I spoke to him, I got the overall sense from him that kind of comedy at the moment is kind of like a harder sell for awards and recognition at festivals. And I just wondered what your experience was. My experience is that people are really looking for important movies. And I think that, you know, the human experience is important. I think like calling attention to just like the everyday problems we face makes us feel more united Mm. and less alone. And I think that those things are really important too. But yeah, I have been noticing at the festivals that, you know, it has to be about a trans issue or it has to be about Alzheimer's or Mm. it has to be about you know, something more than, than just being alive. And, you know, mine is really about like how hard it is to communicate in a marriage. And Mm. Peggy is about that woman that everybody knows who just seems perfect and underneath everybody just hates her. And she, you know, and she's not a great, and she's not a great person underneath. Mm. So our comedies are really not about like what's currently considered important topics, Mm. even though they are important topics, because they're things that we deal with. My movie is about something that everybody in a long-term relationship has dealt with. Maybe not the way it's dealt with in my movie, but they, you know, everyone's dealt with being the feeling of, of being taken 
for granted by the person you're in a relationship Mm. with, of not feeling appreciated, of not feeling heard and listened to. Everybody's dealt with like having communication breakdowns or Mm. weird communications. And I think my film also deals with the difficulties of elder care. What do you do when your parents Mm. get older? Like on both sides of that, like it's hard for the old person and it's hard for the people who have to be saddled with taking care of that person. And I I don't know if there are better uh, social programs set up for this in other countries, but in America, there's just no money for elder care. You Mm. know, once your parents get old, that just comes out of your budget. There aren't a ton of programs and services to help you. I feel like the issues that are dealt with in my short are important, but they're not as important as these kind of more niche, important issues that are just kind of getting screen time for the first time. Like, yeah. Uh, And that's why I think that the trend has kind of gone toward the more niche important issues that don't deal with society as a whole, but deal more with like this group that hasn't had a voice before. Mm-hmm. There's always, I guess, there's prevailing relevantly cultural sort of like topics that you'll find in, you know, in a crop of short films over a specific time period. You know, the, the theme of not being able to um, relate to your partner or struggling to communicate is always going to be like a universal one. Yeah. And that's kind of what interests me, that and women's point of view stuff, you know, mm. which obviously I have my own niche that I care about. The fact that women's stories haven't been told, but, you know, even in mine, which is a universal story, it does deal like I said a little bit with like the problems of elder care but it Mm. also deals mine deals with strong female character who doesn't take the shit lying down just sort of touching on that particular point of more female-led films and film festivals and I hate to sort of generalize in terms of sort of gender here whether you're male or female you're still confronting the same similar sort of challenges albeit possibly sort of different ones in terms of career not necessarily in terms of like craft like you said I've always felt that as a director, my ability to do the craft is equal to any man's, but it took me a long time to notice that other people were not accepting that about me for a Mm. long time in my career. And it wasn't until I had some retrospect on my career that I realized how much that's held me back, um, partly because people just didn't give me the benefit of the doubt in the way that they were giving it to like my male counterparts, Mm. um, despite the work having, you know, maybe sometimes like I made a film when I was 25 years old. It was a, it was a 28 minute film. It starred Ronnie Cox, who at the time was really well known from the film Deliverance. He's one of the four main guys in that film. Cress Williams, who was kind of up and coming and who currently is very well known for a a show he stars in on CW called Black Lightning. Mm -hmm. But It was like a half an hour comedy. It got distribution at a time when there wasn't an internet you could distribute on. It literally got picked up by a sales agent and it played on TV around the world, Mm -hmm. including on the Arte network. I like had that all happen when I made this film when I was 25 and then the distribution probably happened when I was like 26. For me, that seemed like I had proven myself enough at that point to start getting bigger meetings, meetings on features, meetings on TV show directing and stuff like that. It just didn't happen. And at the time, it wasn't as much of a glut of filmmakers as there is now, because Mm -hmm. like the one thing that, you know, the cheaper cameras and the cheaper editing systems has done is it's really opened it up 
to a lot more people and a lot more people do it. But back then, you know, I shot that on 16 millimeter film. It cost a lot more than it costs now to make a movie, even with Mm -hmm. everybody working for free, which they did, (laughs) you know, for that film. You know, I had three years of experience leading up to that, working as a television director's assistant, where my training was literally on the set of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager and um, some other dramas in on network television and we also I even had training doing multi-camera shows in comedy as well Mm. so I had kind of like by the time I was in my low 20s mid 20s experienced firsthand doing shot lists for a network television show you know putting them in order learning how to be efficient with my time and being in this professional environment and I really thought that I had a shot and I was very surprised to see that despite, you know, I was kind of a rare specimen at that time. Like now, if I had done all that, it wouldn't be as rare because everyone has a short film. But I had all that amazing professional training and this 28 minute short film with famous people that got distribution and played on an important network in other places too, you know, and it basically led to almost nothing. (laughs) So... So when meanwhile, I saw men that I knew with like films that didn't even make sense, that didn't get distribution. Yeah. yeah. They were getting opportunities. Wow. And it like I didn't really notice it at first. I thought I just had bad luck. It wasn't until I looked back on patterns in my career of how much difficulty I had um, networking because I became friends. I'm, I have a very outgoing personality and I'm not shy and I'm not afraid to talk to people and I treat everybody the same, like normal. So I was able to make friends with a lot of guys who were doing great things who should have led to my next opportunities. But what happens a lot of the time is those people don't see you as a creative entity. I think now that there's a conversation about it, people are opening their eyes more. But Mm -hmm. back then, you know, I think they just saw me as like, do I want to have sex with her or not? And so networking in a business of it's who you know becomes really, really difficult too. Mm. So those are some of the things that I encountered as a woman, but I didn't realize they were happening until I looked back. Right. You know, I mean, at a certain point, I realized that every time I went to coffee to talk about my projects, a guy would ask me on a date. And I would oh get, I got God. to the point where like, if I found out at the coffee meeting that the, that the guy was gay, it was such a relief. It was like, <laughs> oh, wow, we're actually talking about career. Oh. This is amazing. Mm. You know, you get very paranoid about it. Yeah. Which is why the Me Too movement, you know, even if you haven't actually been physically assaulted Mm. is so important to bring awareness to the fact that like, I I don't know that I was physically assaulted ever, but I was definitely seen constantly as a dating person when I was having, when I was having conversations with the person and they were usually using that to lure me about, uh, work. Right. So, so I'd say in that way, uh, that's the main ways that it's, that it's prohibited me. But the other thing when it comes to comedy that's also important and that doesn't get talked about as much as a woman Mm -hmm. is that our comedic sensibility is different Mm -hmm. sometimes. We understand the male sensibility because we've been raised in a male world and some of us appreciate it and enjoy Mm -hmm. it. I I definitely enjoy it. But I feel like I can also bring a second sensibility to comedy, which is a more female-driven sensibility Mm -hmm. because there are some things that we find funny because they're part of our experience Mm. that men don't relate to. 
So whereas we relate to the male experience because we are living in a man's world, Mm -hmm. you know, you often hear like black people say this as well, like, oh, we understand the white experience because we live in a white world. You don't necessarily understand the black experience because you don't have to. And Mm -hmm. I think the same is true for women, you know, and and it really becomes a hindrance sometimes with the comedy where a woman would get what's funny about something, some of the things that I might and find funny and a man wouldn't. And since the men are making all of the decisions, they don't necessarily relate to it. Yeah. I was speaking to another um, filmmaker and she'd made a film. It was called Alice and she was a South by Southwest. I should just say it was about sort of um, prostitution. She definitely had a very different perspective on the idea of, of that world and how she wanted to portray it. No, it's true. I mean, like prostitution is a much deeper topic for a woman because Mm. it involves you. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's something that like how many times in my life have people said to me, well, if it doesn't work out, at least you can sell your body. (sighs) Like, you know what I mean? That's that's a legitimate option Mm. that every woman considers. Right. You know, like it's that's it's not just selling your body. There's so much emotion Mm. that would go along with deciding even to be a stripper. Yeah. You know, there's so much that has to be set up in your life for you to even consider that a viable option. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's like if I said to a man, well, if it doesn't work out, I'm sure you can find a mafia that would be willing to let you be a hitman. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you, you don't just feel okay about murdering people. Yeah. Something has to happen in your life mm. for you to feel okay about murdering people. Just sort of jump back to Pants on Fire, which is the movie you're talking about, which is the sort of 28 minute yeah. long short film that you made. It was very involved. Like you had like multiple locations, multiple setups, like a huge cast, as you said, um, really well known and up and coming actors, not to mention Patrick Newell, who is a huge oh. producer now as well in his own right. He just did um, The and Old Man and the Gun. this the second film he ever produced. <laughs> I don't think you can make a short film on that kind of scale anymore from the ones I've seen recently. Yeah. And that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to prove like, look, Mm. I'm young, I'm a woman, but I don't have any issue with doing all this stuff, working with these big stars. I mean, my producer was not who he is now, but you know, but they were going to be him and Chris Brinker, who's no longer with us, but also had a pretty good career, did the Mm. Boondock Saints movies and was in the middle of directing his first feature film when he um, had an aneurysm and passed away like both of them went really far but they were motivated you know Chris Brinker at the time was already the assistant to a big producer at New Line like Mm -hmm. I was working in professional television so Mm -hmm. I was I had some access to people my sound person was the sound person from Star Trek Deep Space Nine so despite shooting outdoors and having airplanes I had no sound problems in (laughs) post-production Just sort of jumping into your time after you graduated from UCLA um, and working on shows like Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and also I understand you worked on a few shows from the uh, creators of Frasier as well, some sitcoms. Yeah, Grub Street Productions. Yeah, there was a show we did called The Pursuit of Happiness. There was another one that was about, I forget what it was, it was about uh, someone who played a cop on a TV show. Oh, okay. Uh, Almost... Was it called Almost Perfect? I think it might have been called Almost Perfect. How was that sort of formative 
experience in your in your life when you were in your early 20s sort of influenced your own filmmaking in 2019 is there any particular uh, lessons or advice that you took from that you still carry to this day yeah I mean all of it I went from being a college student to being on professional sets and my boss Kim Friedman who was the director I worked for she basically sat me down the first day and told me in no uncertain terms <laughs> how to behave on a set, which was something I would never have just known naturally. She said, don't talk to the actors. Don't talk to anyone about me. Everyone's going to ask you questions. You say nothing. Stay out of the way. If people are working, you make sure you're never in the way. Mm. Um, You know, when we'd get to the set, like one time we sat down at Deep Space Nine in the cafe and I moved some plates so I could put my binder down and work on a scene with her. And she was like, you can't move anything. This is a hot set. You know, like things like that where, you know, you can't like on a professional set as opposed to how you learn in film school and on independent sets, Mm. there are very distinct lines between where one person's job ends and the next person's job starts. So if you need to move like a director's chair, because we're moving to a different location, that's the prop person's job. You do not do that yourself on a professional set, you know, because they have unions and they have union rules and it's all built around safety, but it's, but it actually works. Like it's not, there's no overlap somehow between what is the prop person's job and what is the set person's job. And everyone knows where their place is. So I was kind of taught the very professional way of doing it right from the start. And it was a little like awkward for me to work on a slightly less professional (laughs) set on my own set. But I did get I did get a lot of professional people on my set. So, Mm. I mean, a lot of people commented after we shot Pants on Fire. Wow, that was a really professional set. But my cinematographer was like a recent grad of AFI and Mm. he had on some indie sets. He hadn't worked so much on professional sets, but my AD was a second AD who wanted to be a first AD. So I moved, I did a lot of moving people up from professional sets to the next level they were trying to get to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, things work a little differently on a professional set than they do on a, on an independent set, you know, where everyone's kind of trying to cut corners. Just one Star Trek related question. Just one. Was there a particular episode of um, Star Trek that you worked on that was your favorite? I'm really not a Trekkie. And so working on Star Trek was an interesting dichotomy between loving the work and Mm. not really being a fan. Right. Okay. Um, And and then in my free time, everyone knew I was working on it. So I was kind of attracting all the Trekkies. Right. And they all wanted to talk about stuff. And I had insider information um, about how it all worked. But no, I, I wasn't a fan of what the scripts were about. Uh-huh. Um, I will say I did manage to get Cress uh, Williams an audition for uh, the first Jem Hadar on Deep Space Nine. He right. played till, and he ended up getting the role, which was a great thing. Oh, so wow. I really enjoyed that episode because it introduced my friend, you know, um, into this leader of the Talak. His name was Talak Talan, and he was the leader of the Jem Hadar. Right. And um, the Jem Hadar became an alien race after that episode. Yeah, now he's Black Lightning. He's a uh... yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, well, I didn't give him his first job, but it was definitely at the beginning of his career. Like he had already done a little arc on Beverly Hills 90210. Yeah. Um, at that point, like a ten episode arc on 90210, and I think he had done like one other 
thing that was important. But it was early in his career too. Definitely a good one because it's sort of a genre one as well. You know, leg up if you get into the sort of more genre sort of sci-fi thing, you get in there, you do a great job. Yeah, well, it's interesting on Star Trek, they really use Shakespearean actors. Mm. So, and I knew Cress knew how to do Shakespeare, you know, but like Rene Aubergenois and uh, Armin Shimmerman, all those guys come from mm. a Shakespearean background and you need that in order to be able to say some of the techno babble. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's very dense. It is very dense. So I just wanted to jump into that you're a member of the Alliance of Women Directors and I, I just want to know what kind of support they offer to female filmmakers and what's your role within the organisation? So the Alliance of uh, Women Directors is primarily a volunteer organisation. So the people who run it are mostly volunteers. We just got our first paid head Okay. You know, uh, for the first time, raised money and got someone who's going to be in charge of really creating a lot more opportunities for us. But, you know, the Alliance of Women Directors puts on a lot of events uh, through mostly it's been volunteer, but now we're going to have someone who does that for us. And all the events are educational, they're social. So it's helped me really create a great network of other women who mm-hmm. are out there directing stuff. Now, when I go to a festival, I show up and I usually know a few people there. Oh, nice. um, one great thing I got out of the Alliance of Women Directors is one program we do called the Work in Progress program, which they do at Canon and Photochem every other week. And what we do is we screen some of our films when they're near ready to be done. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do that with Sorry Not Sorry and handed out a 10 question survey where I was able to kind of gauge how much people liked the film and where they thought it could use improvements. And um, it was kind of like doing a test audience with a bunch of with 30 professionals. Yeah. And I think that that really had a lot to do with how tight my film became because my film was eight minutes at the time. And after that, my film became seven minutes. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that while it was really good already and I was getting really high scores on the survey, Mm -hmm. they gave me some advice of places I could still cut and ways that I could just make it even a little bit better that was super, super useful. But as a woman, I mean, the biggest takeaway from the Alliance of Women Directors is just knowing all the other women who are doing it and having a community that you can go to and ask questions of and just know that you're not alone anymore Mm -hmm. like I was at the beginning of my career. Just from a point of view of like a a woman approaching a career in, in filmmaking, what would you say the biggest sort of barrier to entry is? Is it, and this is a bit of a stereotype, but is it the more sort of technical side of things? Because that seems to be very much sort of like a boys club. All the female DPs and camera people out there will tell you that that's not true. Mm-hmm. But I would also say, I, I think that is a stereotype that gets yeah. in the way of women being able to do those cinematography jobs and such. Mm-hmm. And then also the sense that you're, you need to be big enough to carry a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is filmmakers, uh, directors do not need to carry anything ever. Mm-hmm. They don't even need to know a lot of the technical stuff because that is the DP's job. And that was something mm-hmm. I learned in professional television, by the way. I didn't need to know what size the lens was. I just needed to know if I wanted it to be a wide lens or a long lens. Right. And then it's the DP's job to, you know, it, it helps yeah. if you know that stuff a little bit, but it's not that hard to learn. Right. Um, but you don't need to know how to light it. You just need to know how to describe what you want it to look like. Mm-hmm. The same is true when you get to post-production, when you do the score. I don't need how to know how to write music. Mm-hmm. I just need to know when I'm c- communicating with my composer how to describe 
describe the emotion mm. that I'm trying to get to. And when it comes to comedy, obviously, there's usually a moment where I might say specifically, I want something here to really punch this moment or mm. this joke, but I don't need to know how to write music. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, and I the same is true when you're working with a cinematographer. You need to know how to communicate mm -hmm. what the look is and what the size is and how much of the person we're seeing and where they're, you need to know where they're standing. Mm -hmm. But that's not, as that's not related to anything technical, right? You know, so like, so I would say when it comes to directing, it doesn't make sense at all. Directing is really a creative job, right. and right. women have proven to be creative just as much as men. Yeah. And to have yeah. an interesting, slightly different point of view mm -hmm. that just needs to be valued for people to see the value in it. The problem is, no one ever saw the value in it because men were making the decisions <laughs> all the time, and they still are for the most part, but at least now they're being made aware of the fact that, you know, until they start looking at the female point of view, they're not going to understand it. Because when those movies come out in theaters, they do really well, and they're forced to realize that they're leaving men money on the table by not paying attention to those points of view, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it does come down to money and, I guess, like opportunity. Yeah, well, it's funny because they, they haven't followed the trends. In America, every time a movie opens that's got an entirely black cast, it's number one at the box office mm. every single time. Yeah. And they always go, oh, this is amazing. We should make more movies like this. And then they just don't. Mm. Um, it's funny. Uh, Gina Davis has a documentary out right now. It's just starting the festival circuit. Um, and it'll be in theaters soon, I'm sure. It's called This Changes Everything. Right. And the reason she called it that is because every time a movie comes out that has women and it does amazing at the box office, which yeah. is almost every time, everyone goes, oh, this changes everything. Now mm. they're going to make movies about women, you know, mm. with every audience. They go, oh, you know, Tyler Perry had a hit. Now they're going to make movies about black people. This yeah. changes everything. So the movie is called This Changes Everything for right. that reason. And Gina Davis's whole point is, but it never changes anything. Right. You know, yeah. they still go back and say, yeah, but movies about women don't sell. Oh, nobody wants to see movies about women, despite the fact that we are 51% of the population mm -hmm. and we tend to make more of the decisions about what our family is going to watch at the movie theater. And there are studies that show that movies by and about women are making 37 cents more on the dollar than right. movies that aren't about women. Now, part of that is because movies about women are getting made for lower budgets, but still they're making 37 yeah. cents more return on investment than movies that aren't about women are making. So Gina Davis's point in the movie, and that's also important, is that what does change everything is that now we have data. Right. And the data is showing real numbers, not just like before when I was coming up, it was always like the studio heads were like, no one wants to see movies about women. And their reason for that was because they didn't want to see movies about women. Right. But now that there's data, no one can say that anymore and be right. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. So. So that's really helpful also for, you know, all the underrepresented people is that the data is showing things like. Latinos go to the movies more than their percentage of the population. Right. They're overrepresented in the movie theaters and they're underrepresented on the screens. Mm -hmm. So like that kind of data could really help people make a lot more money. So I just wanted to sort of jump into Sorry Not Story. I just wonder what the um, 
creative spark was that made you want to adapt William Carlos Williams' 1934 poem, this is just to say, as your latest short film? I read the poem. I learned about the poem when I was freshman at UCLA, when I was like, you know, 17 years old or something. And I was taking English literature. We learned the poem and it instantly became my favorite poem. I just loved it. I love how it's like simple and short and unpretentious. And it says so much with so few words. Um, so I wrote it down in my journal at the time I was keeping a journal and over the holidays, uh, last year, I decided to reread my journal just to kind of find out like if I was still the same person. And in the journal, it turns out I had written down the poem and next to it, I had written, this would make a great short film. Oh, nice. (laughs) And in that instant, the whole plot and the whole structure just came to me. And I wrote it down like a quick little outline beat sheet. And and then I started calling the publisher to find out if I could get the rights to make it into a movie. So it was almost like my past self sent my future self a message. And it happened to be right at the moment when all this stuff was happening for women. Mm -hmm. And I had been sort of thinking about like, God, I really should make a new short film now that there actually are opportunities for women. Right. You know, so I was kind of like in the back of my mind thinking, I really need to make a short film. I really need to make a short film. And separately, I was reading my book just for fun because it was the holidays and I was bored. And, um, <laughs> and there it was, it just right. happened. So I started tracking down the, um, the publisher. And when I found out that I was going to be able to get the rights to make this, I wrote the film in an hour. There was another question that I had. I mean, did you have to go about getting um, permission to use William's work? Somehow the chain of title has continued to be, um, but basically this publishing house has maintained the rights to all of his work. So I tried, I basically researched it on the internet so I, I looked up who owns the rights to this. I was hoping that he, you know, it would be in public domain because um, it's so old and he's been gone for a long mm-hmm. time. But it turned out New Directions Publishing has these books of poems that they control. And so I, I basically did a contract with them uh, asking for the non-commercial rights because I never made the film with the intention of distributing it. Right. Um, but since then I have been approached by several distributors about the film. And so now I'm, I've renegotiated with them what they would get if I do distribute it, but I'm still trying to decide if I want to distribute it. I'm taking meetings and I may or may not distribute it because the thing with a short film is when you do distribution, you tie Mm. up your rights. And, you know, I made, I made this really as a sample Mm -hmm. of what I can do. So the objective was always like at some point when I'm done with the festivals, I'm supposed to throw it up on YouTube and just be like, Hey guys, here's my work. Check it out. I'm awesome. Hire me. Um, (laughs) But if, but, if I, but if I put it through distribution, then I have to wait longer yeah. to do that. What was the option length that you took out on the material? Oh, well, I told them, you know, I need to have the rights to this in perpetuity. Oh, right. Know. So indefinitely then. So Yeah, but, but it's not exclusive. So right. someone else could go get the rights from them and make another short film based on it if they wanted to, or they okay. can use, or they can license it if they want to use it in any creative work. Like right. I didn't get an exclusive license, but I kind of explained to them, look, you know, I can't suddenly not be able to show my film to mm. people. So I need to have it at least, you know, for the duration of my life, but for the duration of oh, the copyright wow. of the film. So they were okay with it. They understood it was just like a calling card I was making. And if I do distribution, then I'll have to pay them. 
right. a piece of, you know, everything that I make on the film. How do you go about updating the poem for a, more, a modern audience and how much creative license did you take? I didn't update the poem at all. I used it it's in its entirety right. exactly the way it's written because it's perfect and I would never change it. And I don't think they would have allowed me to change it. You know, it would be different if you were doing a novel adaptation, mm. but this wasn't an adaptation. This was more, it was inspired by the poem and I wanted to have a license to use the poem as the first note in the movie. Mm. Um, but the rest of it, the rest of it really just comes from my mind and where I thought it would go. I've always asked myself, you know, what a jerk. He ate her poems and leaves this sort of note with, that has this subtext of sorry, not sorry. Right. Like I ate, I ate your plums. But I really enjoyed it. So, oh, well, sorry, not sorry. And to me, the fact that sorry, not sorry is a Twitter meme and, and in the modern times naturally makes it updated in a way. Right. It, because what it says is that this sentiment of being sorry, but not really sorry is something that is timeless. Mm -hmm. And so I had always asked myself, like, well, when she w I always assumed it was a man eating his wife's plum and he was just disrespecting her. And, and I always ask myself, like, well, when she finds those plums yeah. the, the next day and it's time for her breakfast, because the poem talks about you you're saving them for breakfast, mm -hmm. you know, when she wakes up and wants to have those plums for breakfast and she finds that they're eaten, how does she react to that? So that's sort right. of the jumping off point for me that I always wondered, like, oh, she's going to be mad when she sees this poem. So the actual poem part is just the opening few scenes and then you created Harry and well, Abby. Yeah, exactly. Like the plum is in the movie in its entirety. It's the first note. Right. He says, you know, this is just to say I've eaten the plums that were in the icebox, okay. which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me. They were delicious, so sweet and so cold. That is the whole poem. Oh, wow. And it's just perfect the way it is. Yeah. And I mean, the only thing I didn't update on the poem is like he said that we're in the ice box. And so I just, you know, updated that by making it a refrigerator, mm. which is what an ice box is in 1934. Yeah. So, so, I mean, like modern day, we would never say they were in the ice box, but I think that kind of adds a nice kitsch element mm. to the movie. But yeah, I invented the character of Harry. I invented the character of Abby and the character of Harry's father, as you can see, is nowhere mentioned in the poem mm. i invented that whole storyline for my own storytelling needs <laughs> right okay which i will not divulge at this point so uh, how did you go about getting your cast and crew together for your short film i knew i wanted to get at least some recognizable people because i had done that with my first film and i didn't want to make something that was like less professional than mm. what i did when i was 25 <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah um, yeah um, so I kind of made a list of like who I knew that I could go after for each of the roles. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of my starting point. And, um, I knew, I didn't know Wallace Langham, but right. my DP had known him for 20 years and actually had used him in a short film he made 20 years ago. <laughs> oh, nice. And they'd stayed friends ever since. Yeah. And they were like kind of in the same circle of friends. So I went through someone in that circle of friends to get the script to him. And he just sent him the script. And then two days later, I got an email from him saying, hey, I read your script. I liked it. I'd be up for doing this. Mm -hmm. um, and he also knew that the DP was going to be shooting it. So I think that gave him a certain amount of confidence, too, right. because... He had recently hired the same DP, Wally had hired yeah. the same 
DP to make his own short film, which was his directorial debut. Oh, nice. So he had not only worked with him as an actor, but he'd also worked with him as a cinematographer and he knew that he would look good. Mm-hmm. So that helped. And then once I had him attached, it gave the film a lot more credibility. So when I was going after the role for the father, which actually was written to be a parent, it was because I was open to casting father or mother at okay. first. Yeah. The role is actually inspired by my grandmother who has been gone for like 25 years. So she's not offended. <laughs> And in case anyone wonders if she was offended by the portrayal, she either has no idea about it or she's honored that I decided to pay homage to her existence through this film, Yeah, which is, which is how I kind of took it, even though the role is kind of annoying. Mm. Like in my mind, when I wrote it, I thought it was really funny and I thought right. she was really funny. You know, I thought she was kind of like this hilarious person so my idea was to pay homage homage to her and Mm. like it wasn't meant to be an offensive portrayal it was something I thought she was really a funny person and she had a funny way of expressing herself so I really tried to capture that in the film but ultimately when push came to shove and I was casting it I sort of felt like do I really want to put another nagging woman on screen (laughs) Mm. and so even though I had I had been open to casting a man or a woman, I decided mm. ultimately that I really, really wanted to cast a man yeah. so that it wouldn't be like that same portrayal. And in the process, I ended up getting M. Emmett Walsh, mm. who, you know, was willing to look at the project because Wallace Langham was already intact. Right. So that legitimized the project for him and it made it seem like, okay, this will be a professional project. Um, yeah. I don't I could have gotten him if I didn't already have the other actor attached. Right. And then and then Jessica Oyelowo um, has a kid in school with my niece. Oh, okay. So my sister was knew her from being moms together, mm-hmm. and my sister managed to get to her. And, <laughs> and I was able to. <laughs> I love it. I, lo- I love it. Nice. <laughs> and I was able to, you know, write her, and I sent her the pitch deck and the script, and yeah. you know, I was able to like tell her about my DP's experience, which is a lot mm. of experience. And I was able to tell her that I had Emmett and I had Wally attached. Then she just asked a few questions, like, "Are you planning to do it this way or this way?" Blah blah blah. When's it going to be? And then she said, "Yeah, I'll do it. Sounds good." Funny how those things about work out, isn't it? Yeah, but I also only shot for one day. Right. So it wasn't a big time commitment for anyone, (laughs) (laughs) you know. And yeah, what a legend to get, um, Emmett Walsh. I was kind of trying to find people through connections and I was having a hard time because the problem with actors in that age category is a lot of them are retired due to medical illness. Mm. In fact, a few of the people that I had wanted to get when I was first like making a list of who I might be able to get to have passed away since I made the film. All right. like that age category is hard because a lot of people who are, you know, in the age category, if they're healthy, they're working because yeah. there aren't that many of them. Yeah. And if they're not healthy, they're not working. And mm. some of them have, you know, very difficult memory problems. Mm. And yeah. as you've seen from, from watching the movie, that is the character that has all of the lines. It's basically a seven page long monologue. 
yeah. of that one character. So when you're talking about people who are sort of losing their memory, it becomes really hard for them to take on roles that have that much dialogue. So in the end, I ended up putting a breakdown through the casting service, breakdowns. Yeah. And on breakdown, I said, I'm looking for name actors only. We already have Wallace Langham involved. Please submit if you're interested, if you're available to shoot on this day. Like I set a date for the shoot mm. and, and his manager submitted him. And I was like, yeah, definitely. I want to work with him. So Yeah. I'm trying we to think the good. only other actor recently I know um, was Stacey Keach because I guess he's in a similar age. Yeah. yeah, he's, you know, I almost, I mean, I, I there's there's a few others. There's Ed Asner, but he's yeah. older. He's in his 90s, you know, mm. Emmett's only in his 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're playing that game, aren't you? <laughs> You know, yeah. but it makes it different. Yeah, it you does, know? I yeah. Mean, the good thing about the role was the character sits in a chair the whole time. So mm. I was able to advertise that. The character doesn't have to walk and talk. They sit in a chair the whole time, Yeah, <laughs> you know. But, yeah, it was hard. I was even going after a few actors in their 70s, but a lot of those actors were busy. They, they were working. I bet they, yeah, really in demand, know? yeah. Like, I, I tried to get Rita Moreno, but she was working on One Day at a Time. Mm. I, you know, and then ultimately I'm really glad I didn't get a woman. So I just wanted to just sort of touch on what was the one sort of technical or directorial sort of skill you feel you improved upon while working on Sorry Not Story that you'll be taking on to your next project? I learned some things about editing, ways that you can cut that maybe I hadn't been fresh on, like especially when someone walks from one room to another room, I really felt like I had to show the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the editors that I worked with like was like, let me make some cuts and if you don't notice them, we'll keep them. Right. You know? And so I think there were some things in the editing where she was able to cut like really boring parts out that I felt like, well, it's not going to have continuity if we don't right. show that part. She managed to create continuity in ways that I wasn't expecting. Like there's a, a long walk when Jessica walks from the kitchen mm. to the living room where I felt like we needed to see it and we didn't need to see it. And there's another moment also when Wally walks from the kitchen to the living room where she was able to cut a lot of extraneous walking yeah. out of that. Like there were things like that where I was like, oh, well, and I think that's a modern editing tool mm -hmm. that didn't used to be in films before. I think that's something that's changed. And the editor that showed it to me is someone who actually ed edits a lot of reality TV. Right. And so I think that reality TV has actually kind of changed the rules of what's acceptable in editing and how much mm. the audience is educated in understanding what's going on, even if you show them a little bit less. So just sort of wrapping up, I just wondered what your uh, dream project would be if money in time wasn't an object. I am currently developing a feature film mm -hmm. with... Jessica Oyelowo. Yeah. Um, I, lo I loved her performance so much in this short that I asked her if she would star in this movie. And the movie is actually kind of loosely based on me. So I right. think it should be a huge honor for her to play the person, <laughs> to be asked to play the person who was actually about. Um, yeah. no, I shouldn't say that. It's very loosely based on me. But but because the thing that my character does is very unlikable, so people will hate me if I say it's based on me. But mm. um, <laughs> but basically, I have a feature film called Bad BFF, right. which is about a girl who pretends she's getting married 
in order to get her best friend to pay attention to her. Okay, okay. And now I have never pretended I was getting married. But what did happen is my very best friend, who I've known since I was six months old, yeah. um, kind of disappeared from my life when she got married and started a family. Mm-hmm. She just became so overwhelmed with her husband and her kids and her having a full-time job and all of that that she kind of lost the grasp of her own schedule and wasn't even able to find time to return my phone calls anymore. Mm. So then I had a big birthday that came and went and, um, I had a party and she wasn't able to make it to my party Yeah, and it was very upsetting to me. And it really caused, uh, like the kind of pain that you have when you go through a really hard breakup where like you just can't believe that person is just not there for you anymore in the way that they always have been for your whole life. Um, Then I found out that she missed my party to go to an out-of-town wedding. Then I felt very offended. Like, why would she consider that person's wedding? And by the way, the person who was getting married to add insult to injury was the roommate of an ex-boyfriend of mine who broke my heart. Oh, no, that's terrible. She had stayed friends with him, and it had been years ago. It was years ago that that guy broke my heart, but but she had stayed friends with the roommate the whole time. And the the roommate's a really nice guy, and I'm not offended that she stayed friends with him, but Mm. it just was kind of like, who is so important that you would go to their wedding over my, my, you know, momentous birthday that I'm having? And ultimately what someone said to me was, it's probably not who's more important. It's just the fact that people consider weddings more important than birthdays. And I was like, but this was an important birthday and I'm not getting married. Like I'm sort of one of those people who doesn't really believe in marriage. As right. you maybe you'll tell from seeing sorry, not sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I kind of never thought of myself as someone who would get married. It was never something I was trying to do or mm. wanted to do. I, I always, I'm open to having a long-term relationship. I'm in a long-term relationship. Yeah. I just don't see the point of marriage. And I always thought it was kind of a sexist institution that mm-hmm. was not good for the woman. That's very good for the man, but it's not good for the woman. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of always saw it that way very realistically and not in the dreamy woo-woo phase. Right. So the character is all those things about me. The character, okay. the whole thing gets set in motion when the friend misses the birthday party and then the main character I did I fantasized I was like well if I got married would she even come to that you know yeah sort of a fantasy that I turned into a real life situation in the movie um and what happens in the movie is that this sort of lie that she's just telling one person Mm. because the idea is if she's my maid of honor then we have to go cake tasting and dress shopping Mm. and plan parties and do all this stuff together I don't actually have to have a wedding right you know what I mean like the plan the plan is I can cancel the wedding (laughs) before it comes to that date and then it, because this guy broke my heart. Right, yeah, yeah. This imaginary fiance broke my heart. <laughs> now she'll feel like she needs to hang out with me even more to console mm. me about that, right? So yeah. that's kind of the premise of the movie. Okay. And and the title, Bad BFF, we don't really know by the end of the movie which one of them is the bad BFF. <laughs> it could be either of them. But I wanted to mm. show both sides, both like how hard it is for a woman to maintain her friendships once she gets involved in marriage and having and having kids and having a new family, but also show this other side of like, what about a woman who's left behind by all her friends? Mm. You know, because when I decided I wasn't going to get married, I still thought I'd always have my friends there to love me and do things with. I didn't yeah. think I was going to end up not having anyone to hang out with yeah. and not having anyone 
support me to be my support system. I always thought I would have a support system. And Mm. that was something that as I got older, I realized wasn't as true as I thought it was. So that's the project that I really want to do next as my feature film debut. And I am trying to raise money for it. And Jessica and her husband, David, have a production company. So we've been developing it through them as well. And so hopefully we'll be making that and talking to you about that in more detail very, very soon. So there you have it. I had a great time chatting with Monique. Please do like and subscribe to this show on SoundCloud and YouTube and drop a comment or two. And you can get in touch with me at the Samling01 on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Tom and I'll catch up with you next episode.